0: This is the podcast of the night. Podcast.
1: Oh yeah.
2: the podcast of the night. This is the podcast of the night. Come to trash
1: the share Oh yeah. It's the podcast of
3: the night. <laughs> Welcome to. Coming Attractions. My name's Joe Frost. With me is Nick Milligan.
1: Hello. How's it going?
3: And Dan Fleg. Should I delay my response as well? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joe. How are you going? <laughs> and we've got a very special guest this week, local comedian Ashley Kay. Ash, how are you?
2: Oh, uh, well, thank you.
3: Awesome. So, we all four went and saw Gore Verbinski's latest effort, A Cure for Wellness, uh, this week. Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film?
1: I'd love to Joe, director Gore Verbinski's Gothic thriller *A Cure for Wellness* opens amongst the foreboding skyscrapers of New York City as we watch a corporate boffin working late. He has a niggling chest pain, heads to the water cooler for a cleansing glass of H2O, and promptly dies. The deceased man is replaced by ambitious young corporate ladder climber Lockhart, played by Dane DeHaan, who is tasked with tracking down Pembroke, the corporation's CEO who was moved into a mysterious wellness centre in the Swiss Alps. Pembroke is needed back in the office to sign off on a major merger. Lockhart heads to the castle in the mountainside to retrieve Pembroke, but meets opposition from the bloke that runs the hospital, Dr Heinrich Vollmer, played by Jason Isaacs. When he leaves unsuccessful in retrieving Pembroke, he's in a serious car accident and finds himself an unwilling patient. He also meets Hannah, a young patient who has a mysterious past of her own. An atmospheric, overly long film in shoes with lots of spooky water and more scary eels than the entire Parramatta NRL side combined. Guys, what did we think of A Cure for Wellness? Let's uh, let Ash kick things off, eh?
2: Um, disappointment, I think. A little bit. I mean, visually, it looks really, really, really good. I mean, the scenery is awesome, but the storyline really let it down. Um, it was dragged out way too long. I was just, yeah, extremely disappointed. I mean, some things weren't making sense. Uh, the the plot was just sort of all over the place. Just just not happy with, with the film in general, I think.
0: I think they required a cure for average. <laughs> <laughs> is what I would say. And I'd agree with everything that Ash said as well. There were moments that shone and visually it was quite impressive, but it was far too long. And I think as far as the narrative was concerned as well, it seemed to re- be really inconsistent throughout. But if I was to look at any of the positive points, maybe we should touch on them because I feel like we might all be on the same page with some elements of this film. Um, so uh, I think his name's uh, bohan Bozzelli, the cinematographer for this one. Um some of the shots are fantastic, mm. like some of the best camera work that I've seen in ages uh, you know I don't know it's the opener, and it's it's definitely one of the
3: opening shots uh well, both of the film and of the trailer, where he gets the mirror image of the train's windows mm. to do immaculately polished as Alps, well, and yeah. yeah, yeah, it just looks fantastic, and it takes you a minute to work out like i was I was a bit like, is this some sort of like world folding over on itself uh are they doing like a, a an inception style thing here and i'm like oh, no no oh, it's it's just a mirror right no i have one of those in my house i have a couple actually
0: the backdrop's very impressive all of the lead-up work as far as the camera stuff is is great and unfortunately it seems as though that's where the buck stops uh you, you want to get on board and let's you know for everyone playing at home it's a two and a half hour long film and so you know, it's set up in a fantastic way and you really hope that it's going to be developed even further and this is, you know, just the bedrock for something much more. But uh, there's a lot of holes in the
1: overall production, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, the fairly thin plot doesn't really live up to the visuals. I mean, Gore Verbinski's pretty pretty seasoned filmmaker uh, and obviously, I guess the last really... You know, sort of thriller he did was The Ring, which was his, the American version of The Ring, which had really strong visuals. And it, like, that's the first thing you notice when this movie starts mm. is just the incredible shots. It's one really beautifully composed shot after another. And sadly, and the you, plot doesn't really live up to it.
3: He, he makes a point, which again I think maybe you, you play to the cinematographer of this really drab scenery of New York. It was played off against this really saturated scenery, particularly at the start when you first get to um, the. The sanitarium isn't it such a creepy
0: word as well? Mm. Um, it just you know. I hate wheat
2: right? yeah, I was to say, no <laughs> to um, cereal.
0: Um, I do agree with what, what you're saying though. You have the the drab, uh, I guess plainness, and I guess the in a visual sense the color palette that's used in the opening, uh, first few scenes of, uh, you know, I guess corporate America, and then that is run in parallel with a train that arrives uh, in the Swiss Alps. And, you know, I guess the mechanical element, that I guess that delivery works really well as well. It feels like you are really transitioning from world one to world two, and it is a completely different kettle of fish as well. And that's exciting because there's elements of isolation that are brought up there and you can see how it's been framed. It's a fish out of water scenario in a lot of ways uh, for uh, the protagonist in this one as well, he gets somewhere where he's not really familiar and not really comfortable. And being he's very as washed well. out and pale, and you know he's a product of that
3: drab environment. I, very I, much.
2: I think that's a good. Uh, he looks good against this such the the perfect backdrop of of the sanitarium. You know, everything just looks so perfect and clean. But I did uh, like what they did with some of the ca- the characters that you do meet along the way. Is they start to look sick and so you all of a sudden they start to look not so perfect and mm. that's when i think you start going okay what's going on here
0: yeah the thin veil starts to be
3: well it's funny you mention the, the word thin because he <laughs> made this real co- like conscious decision of i want fat old people and it's really important that particularly the women have got these there's that scene where uh, they're sort of swimming underwater ah, like yes. in the pools mm. and there's this sort of stream of women with these enormous bellies, and they're all sort of in their 60s and 70s, and even in the the staff that are, I guess, younger and more typically attractive, Verbinski has made a, a point of picking out, I guess, people that aren't standard Hollywood attractive. He's sort of really chosen that, no, I want this to look different in a lot of ways, not just have, you know... No oh, one's the Hollywood aesthetic. No one is the Hollywood aesthetic, and even... Uh, so, it's Dane DeHaan, who plays Lockhart, and there's a, a scene towards the start where he's wandering through, he's getting a, a steam bath, and he's going around with his shirt off, and you're waiting for him to be just, like, a little bit ripped, and he's not at all. Like, <laughs> they're like, mm. dude, I don't know, lose some weight and just be, just be a skinny guy. Be believably, not unwell, but, like, you clearly don't eat well enough, you don't get enough sleep, you know, you don't look healthy. And you, it's like... A, Because I was thinking he's a little bit Leo from Wolf of Wall Street and a little bit, you know, the stereotypical driven Wall Street guy. And then he gets his shirt off and you're like, I'm glad that you've done this, that you haven't made him like with this, like, you know, hint of a six pack or whatever. Like, no, no, he's and it's everyone looks a little bit unwell. And as it progresses, looks really unwell.
2: I I think that using older people that some, yeah, and some of the women and even men are overweight, I think... They would have been easy targets because they've got money, they're retired, they're easily convinced that they need to throw their money at this place and go, Okay, maybe I do need to be changed, and easily sort of, I suppose, brainwashed in a way.
0: I agree with that, but it doesn't save what is some serious holes in the narrative right. and then put across a two and a half hour film. You realize, I mean, some of it feels like sawdust. There's scenes in there that just aren't necessary. I mean, do we want to expand on, on I guess, those two elements? Because I feel like. That's where some of the biggest problems in this film lie. The fact that the narrative isn't particularly cohesive throughout. And then the bits that are good are just pocketed in between what is a very long film.
1: Well, yeah, it, I reckon it could have been 100 minutes long. Yeah. Under two hours, really. Because the plot itself is not... I mean, when you really distill it down without giving away what it is, it's, it's incredibly straightforward, really. Mm. But he was going for this very strong visual element which the, the trailer definitely set up. I was expecting something a lot more abstract and weird, really, than what we got. You know, weird, weird... Like, there's a bit where he's... You know, there's things that seemingly are hallucinations that kind of pop up, but then they never really follow that through. The hallucinogen thing that doesn't really play through. No. It's, a, it's sort of, like, in there to kind of be a little bit unnerving, have this strong visual element, but uh, it's sort of a little bit... I don't know. This just pushed too much.
0: The film insists on the requirement that everything has to be wrapped up with a nice little bow tied at the end. And to be honest with you, with a film that does have these, uh, I guess, psychological guesswork from your main character, or, 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 or numerous characters in this case, some things don't need to be answered. And I think mm. the film would have been of a higher quality if they had a few red herrings in there that had you asking questions at the end that were cohesive with the rest of the film, but they just were never answered. You only got... Just enough for it to be okay. And I found towards the back end, the back third of the film, really, uh, you know, there were plot holes and then they were like, oh, here, we're going to paint every little detail here for you. So there's no way you can confuse what we're talking about. It's like, I don't even know if you needed to do that. I, I, I think that was probably unnecessary and the film would have been better if you had not.
1: Well, they clearly had an, an idea. They've, they've worked backwards to try to kind of, you know, flesh it out with, the, you know, these, these you know... Strong, strong visual elements, but um, yeah, I mean that's it. Like it doesn't really like, the narrative itself. When you, when everything is revealed, really, it's just a mash of a bunch of different films. I mean, the essential plot is very much like Apocalypse Now. He's mm. he's sort of sent down the river to you know retrieve the, the madman. That's that's exactly what he's doing basically.
0: I actually made a note of that. I, um, and when we were talking about it at the end of the film, it's a mix between Cocoon, Shutter Island, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, with some smatterings of Frankenstein there. But despite wearing all those influences on its sleeve, it doesn't really
1: live up to any of
0: those
3: films. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: And it's funny, like, Gore Verbinski's direction, while quite stunning, actually kind of ultimately plays against it a little mm. bit because he does create this very heightened cinematic atmosphere. It's not gritty and realistic. And it may have worked better as a little bit more toned down. Like, you know, I often bemoan films for being for lacking like a cinematic aesthetic and being too much like a, you know, just a very straightforward telly movie. This is the extre- opposite, extreme oh, yeah. opposite basically. It's almost it reminded me a bit of the way Tim Burton might have shot it as well. Mm. You know, just like his unusual gothic imagery and that kind of very dark cinematic atmosphere. But you're constantly aware, as good as the shots are, you're constantly aware that you're watching a movie. We were so abundantly aware that, you know, look at what, look at where Verbinski's put the camera here, like the shot on the outside of the train that you mentioned. And even those opening shots of New York City, like, you know, these v- foreboding shots of the skyscrapers and everything. Uh, so when when they, they try to kind of create scares and tension, you're a little bit detached, I think, because it is such a cinematic construct, the whole, the whole thing. And I think the biggest problem for me was that, you know, as good as Dane De- DeHaan is in the role, he wasn't particularly likeable know, And when, when stuff starts to happen to him, I wasn't really... I didn't really care enough at that point, I don't think. It was unusual casting.
2: He doesn't yeah. have much sympathy for his colleague that he's going to go and, and, and get, though. I, I, I think he's just more of a control freak. Like He's mm. just sort of like, hey, what's going on? I need to know what's going on because he's in a in a uh, job that, that has power. So it's sort of like, I feel like he doesn't really have remorse or anything like that. You just, yeah, I think you end up, I, I found I didn't like him as a character because it's like, you're just snooping now when he sort of <laughs> had chances to go, what? Like, it's a
0: shame. It's probably a waste of Dahan in some ways as well because he's taking direction as well when he comes into this role and he's, you know, he's a proficient actor, but... I just think that the character motivations were, by and large, fairly misplaced throughout, uh, and that's perhaps yeah. what you're both talking about—the fact bit muddled. that, yeah, okay. you know, he's he's sent to complete a task which becomes completely supplementary by the end of the film. It doesn't even, in a way, it's not even important. I I, I agree with <clears throat> with what you're all saying, but uh, but his performance
3: was a big standout for me. I thought he was excellent. I don't know that I've seen him in anything before and I look forward to seeing more of his work I'll go back and watch what did you say he was in? he's in Chronicle Chronicle
0: is, it's like a found footage yeah um, I guess a, a, a supernatural superpowery kind of uh, film I'd, it's quite I'd interesting I've
3: seen the, the trailers and I I don't know it, it didn't grab me but I'm a lot more inclined to go check it out because I thought he was he you know what he had to carry a two and a half hour movie there were three characters in that film maybe and two of them were these elusive, not really their types. And a lot of it just fell on his shoulders. And for the bits that didn't work, it wasn't for lack of trying on Dane DeHaan's part. I thought he was, uh, he, he acquitted himself very well for what was a whole lot of effort and uh, not and, and a lot of story
0: to carry the effort. I'd agree with that, though. I think that's, that's, that's yeah. fair. He, he, uh, again, I, I think he did well with what he had. And what he was told to do, and it's uh, I wouldn't, I don't hold anything against him or his performance. It's just that he just didn't have <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck you, Dehand! Yeah, it's <laughs> like how I, dare you say I yes? I can't this believe I can't believe I got Dehand again. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, I just think yeah, he he did the best that he could with what little he was given to work with.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it was served much by the by the script in terms of characterization uh, We don't we, we learn a little bit about his backstory. Which, Which I was guess, not really that compelling. You could have yeah. s- like stripped it out and been like, "Yep, we're good here." Well, these flashbacks were put in, I suppose, to create some sympathy for him, and you know, regarding his father and stuff. And I guess that was meant to make us understand well, why Well, and they were is. able to
3: tug a little bit at his sanity with it as well. Yeah, mm. that's true.
1: Yeah, but ultimately, I mean, I guess in a thriller, whether the character's uh, a bad guy or a good guy. Uh, you really need something to be kind of likable and interesting about him, and he really didn't have much to work with in that regard. I think he he, he definitely is solid in, in what he does, but mm. but uh, like you know, there's there's some there's some scenes in there that are meant to be for visceral shock value, and I guess I don't know. I guess I was at that point I was so detached by the fact I was watching this very cinematic construct, you know, uh, and it was clearly going to go in that direction. I and mean, we're inside this kind of creepy hospital. When that stuff starts to happen, I was just a little bit like, yeah, I don't know, somehow I didn't have the impact I think they intended it to have, you know, the shock value.
2: But have we seen enough of that already through other films? Perhaps, we, yeah. You know, like they yeah. were sort of desensitised to it, so it's like, oh, okay, mental health. But there well. were
0: contrasts that were, were put into place. For example, uh, his arrival at the sanitarium, you have by and large, everyone's wearing white, it looks really happy, nothing's foreboding at all, Yeah, you know that, that it's going to happen. How that little
3: moment when the guy is, like, flying a kite? Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a good moment There, there is nothing that, that says childlike joy more in the world Than someone flying a kite And for reasons I don't understand Because I think I tried to fly a kite once or twice with my dad And he was like, mate, it's just more effort than it's worth, eh? <laughs> I was like, yeah, pretty much, we're done here Let's go home and watch TV
1: Yeah Maris mm.
3: Poppins was full of shit <laughs>
1: That's definitely part of the setup. I mean, I guess you know we're calling it a sanitarium, but it's really meant to be this sort of actual re- retreat more than anything. They're going there to get away yeah. from the pressures of mm. modern life. So you know, it's the setup is that they're all really happy. So, and of course, you know the, that's probably not going to be the case. But that's clear was, before you even get there.
0: Yeah, and that's the issue, perhaps that that exists more than anything is that it was so obvious that it, everything was going to be bad at that stage. And it's a, maybe maybe that's just. My perspective on it being jaded, having seen so many films that no. have a similar ilk, but that's what straight away you're like, oh, like visually, I understand what you're doing here. But as far as the narrative's concerned, when you're doing something like this, it's far too obvious. It was it
2: was obvious within the first five minutes with the the stamp on the letter.
0: Mm. Yeah, it was a very evil looking stamp. stamp. <laughs> For <laughs> was really stamp. A very early on in the oh. piece, yeah, a letter is sent to uh, a, a corporate uh well, the man that dies. The, the man, other man other that dies, was it? Yeah, that? yeah. yeah. And it's a it's yeah. a Two uh, interwoven S- eels Eel, uh, I- in, yeah. a, in a in classic wax stamp yeah. on a what you, looks like who? a very a very old style uh, kind yeah. of parchment that's been sent. It, it's it, real anachronism, you mm. might say. Yeah, it's um, like if Dracula sent you an invitation to a dinner party you'd <laughs> or something like that.
2: <laughs>
1: well, that's it. I mean, I, I think all the the uh, the tw- twists, if we will call them that, are really signposted. Really, mm. there's, there's some deliberate things there. Even the whole water thing. Water is a motif throughout the whole movie Yes, and and the water itself that they're drinking, you find out quite early on is sort of significant, that's why people go there it's got this beautiful aquifer water and when he's first handed a glass of water by the first doctor he sees when he goes there the camera's literally focusing on this close up on the water and then watching him knock it back and so they're, they're directing you to, towards the water from mm. the, the get go so <laughs>
3: You can lead an audience to water and then you can <laughs> shove their face in it <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. and I guess as we, we mentioned throw before, it in their face. Well that's it. There was a bit too much hand holding going on in yeah. there, as far as the visualization's concerned. Finger smelling. Well <laughs> Perfect segue. All right, okay, yeah. yeah. I can't oh, believe that uh, was the segue we used. But um
2: <laughs> let's gonna, to let, let's talk about
0: uh, what what we're all having a a bit of a, a mm. sadistic chuckle about, I suppose, um, is the morbid sexual tones that exist in Namely two scenes, which perhaps we don't need to go into in much detail, but it is important, perhaps, to bring them up because they exist in the film and, by and large, well, from my perspective,
1: they feel largely unnecessary. Ah. Yet, here they are in all of their dirty, dirty, dirty glory. Yeah, I mean, they're part of the whole pastiche of sort of unsettling imagery in the film, which is sort of really just lumped in there to create this atmosphere. Um, Yeah, there's, there's, there's one sort of, I guess, quarter of the way into the movie... Uh, which which seems quite random, and it is, I suppose. I don't think it's really there for any, any great reason other than to kind of give you some sense of that there's something sinister going on behind the scenes. Um, but there is, without giving too much away, there is a, a pretty graphic sexual assault that takes place in the film that, for me, was uh, completely at odds with the rest of the movie for the large part. It, mm. it really wasn't necessary um, and probably could have been handled a number of different ways. And I think... I think everyone in the theatre was a little bit like, oh, okay, this is just taking this very sharp left turn. It's something that should have been on the cutting room floor um, yeah. without, again, saying too much.
0: What transpired had already been implied. Yeah. Mm, that's uh, and um, the fact that there was... Uh, that, that Vabinsky felt some need for that to be kept inside of the film, just, it escapes me why it's there. I don't. I, I, I took nothing away from it. It didn't add anything to the film. And again, it just felt like I was, you know, being led by, you know, led to the water, as we were saying before. It was just one of those scenarios where, yeah, it, it just felt like it was overkill. Do you guys agree?
2: It made me very, a bit uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah.
2: uh, not that those scenes would ever make me feel comfortable, but it's just, yeah, it was definitely unnecessary. We, You get the idea of what was, you know, the point of what was going on, and then it was like, really? Do you need to show it?
0: And I don't think they needed to at all. It, mm. it, it had already been... It had been central to what was a fairly leaky plot at that stage anyway. And then when you get to this apex point, uh, just the fact that they had to say, do you get it, guys? Does everyone understand? This is what was going on. It's like, I know. You know how I know? Because I sat here for two hours waiting to get to this point. So I know. So all right, Gore, chill it out a little bit. Let's, um, yeah. Well,
1: there's many different ways it could have been shot. If they had to include it, or you know, it could have been implied, it could have been shot from a distance. There's a lot of different ways, but they actually show it in, in quite graphic detail. And for me, it was just it was just for a bit of unnecessary shock value. It didn't really add anything at all. Mm. So it was a very interesting uh, choice on the writer's part. You know, it's interesting. um I think it's Justin haith It was the, was the screenwriter who uh, who Gore's worked with before. He, he did the rewrite of the Lone Ranger, which was another bomb like this has been, really. Um, But as a novelist, was it like a Man Booker Prize uh, Mm. nominee as well? So he's he's a writer of some renown. But I uh, wonder whether people will...
3: Like, I watched The Lone Ranger when it was, you know, I think I was in a, a hotel room in Southeast Asia and it was, you know, late at night and there was nothing on and I watched The Lone Ranger start to finish and I went, this didn't suck. Mm. And it, it had just been panned so heavily and and I'd been told by people that it was just woeful and I was like, I, I don't know, everyone was so harsh on this thing. And I wonder whether Gore is held to a different standard, but also I wonder whether in years to come if people will watch this film with a different... Uh, I didn't hate it, is what I'm saying. Yeah. All right? Um, but maybe, think, yeah. maybe
0: that's an overarching issue that perhaps, I mean, not to speak about the non review film, but perhaps The Lone Ranger, there was expectations behind it because of, I guess, its lineage, and much in the same way that there's expectations that exist perhaps with a cure for wellness, it being a thriller and it needing to achieve certain things and, and create the shock values that are up, up above and beyond what people have seen in other contemporary thrillers. Uh, maybe that's why perhaps that terrible scene exists inside of this film because it's like, well, we need to have these kind of scenes in here, not necessarily because they're uh, they're par for the course, but it's just because they're things that people aren't going to expect us to do because people haven't been willing to tread there. But it doesn't add anything
1: there. No. no. Yeah. I mean, look, in the case of the Lone Ranger, I think what played against it was the fact it got tagged as a box office bomb you know, when it didn't yeah. do so well. It had like a $250 million budget. Like, it went way over budget. That's and, crazy. And crawled across the line. I think it made $260 million, you know. And that's probably not including the marketing. No, no, that's it. Expense. You know, so, marketing uh, and all that. So, he's coming off the back of that, which, you know, he'd been so successful with Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, and then he made that indie film uh, Rango, which I really enjoyed. very adult animated film.
0: I didn't know its place, though, that film. And that's not to say it wasn't good. Yeah. It's just people make the... They come in with with assumptions about animation, assuming that they're for kids, and that I don't think really well, was. He won
3: an it Oscar was a for it. But th- I'm not he saying it was bad. No, no, yeah, no. I'm just saying he is Oscar-winning director Gorevinsky. Yeah.
0: Um. Well, I
3: I, I wonder because it, it it won best animated film of that year. Okay. Right. So I don't know whether that goes to the director or the producer. And to be fair, I don't know whether he was the producer as well because he could have been.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's certainly the Lone Ranger got tagged by that brush. So this is a very interesting film to follow up with, really, like to, to do it. Because I think the Lone Ranger got accused of being overly long as well. It's yeah. well over two hours. So he's sort of, I don't know whether he's learnt from those mistakes. He's mm. done another film that's way too long, really, way too long.
2: But um, how long was Mouse Hunt?
1: <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> he did do Mouse Hunt. <laughs>
2: because I thought...
1: Five hours from memory. I, yeah.
2: I imagine <laughs> that, that Lockhart's uh, struggle for reality was uh, a lot like uh, Nathan Lane and Lee Evans' struggle against the uh, Hunt for the Mouse. That's right, Lee Evans is in that film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's um. Yeah. The tra- okay. The train is g- derailed. <laughs> <I'll go ahead>. <laughs> <laughs> derailed somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting parallel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> if we were to write a cure for wellness, what would we rate the film at? I'll start with you, Joe.
3: <laughs> like I said, I didn't hate it.
0: Um, it, it was
3: overly long, and the story that it told didn't need that length by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it was beautifully shot. The uh, as you said, there were some really visceral moments, and i i felt the vis. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I thought that Dane DeHaan was fantastic, so I'm happy to give it three stars. Mm-hmm. Ash.
2: Uh. Yeah. Look, I mean, it was it was definitely watchable. There were some moments in there that. I mean, I could probably watch it again, if I was really. Tired and needed something to fall asleep to. Um, <laughs> That's not a selling point. Uh, <laughs> no. No, no, it's it really was films. I think it's really <laughs> it was a bit too long, but it was definitely there were parts that did grab me. I mean some of the gory parts I did enjoy. Um, so I'd probably can I can I do it out of beers? I'd say yeah. three beers and two sips out of five. Wow. Mm.
1: Mm. Mm. I'm gonna do it out of eels. I'm gonna give it two eels out of five, mm. I think. Yeah, purely for Verbinski's visual strength But uh, yeah, it's a shame that I mean, I can see why he wanted to do it You know, he probably would have read the script And gone, yeah, I can do something with that There's some, there's some yeah. visual stuff I can do uh, I can see why he did it But just, just too thin Too thin on ideas Way too derivative And uh, ultimately, you know, a little bit forgettable So yeah, two slippery eels for me
0: I think I would go with two and a half stars on this one. As we've all mentioned, visually spectacular, but really a a narrative that lacked any cohesion. Characters that seem to lose their way, which is bizarre because there's only a handful that have the lion's share of screen time. And ultimately, I left after two and a half hours feeling as though I couldn't recommend the film to anyone. And I didn't feel like it really set out for what it, Was ultimately trying to achieve, so I'd be sticking with two stars on this one, two and a half stars. Yeah, indeed. So that's all we have for part one of Coming Attractions. Uh, we'll be back for part two shortly. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: appropriately. Welcome back, uh, to Coming Attractions Um, I'm Ashley Kay, and we're going to be talking about nostalgia. Uh, things that we hold dear that others might not.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Indeed. I think it's one of those things, especially with cinema or maybe cinema at home, that uh, most people of our generation probably have a soft spot for. Everybody's had videos from their childhood. Everybody's had, you know, DVDs, things like that. Physical copies of things that perhaps in this day and age have become quite redundant, but you still keep them. I mean is that something you guys would agree with what's the do you guys have anything like that at home where you've held on to something knowing you're probably never going to use it again but it has some kind of value to you uh for whatever reason uh that forces you to kind of keep hold of it
2: mm, my DVDs I hold dear I still buy them I have massive huge boxes in my storage unit unfortunately mm. they don't uh with me at home um, and I, th- I will still continue to buy them yeah why um, because I I find I cherish it and appreciate it more than what it is I mean with you know we're downloading and stuff we're not paying for it right mm. um, oh, well, you know, no, no, no.
0: here are coming attractions <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: no, we you you can choose to keep to. it no. above board no. No. what no. other no. people choose to do at home is their business well yeah. yes. yeah, yeah. <clears> yeah that's but it. you pay and we, we, yeah, we, d- we do too. Sorry, please go on. Our pins are on our own. Um, <laughs> 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 um, well, if you're watching something on Netflix or Stan <laughs> or something,
1: well, that's you're a right. pain. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, 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 they don't have pornography, which you have to download illegally. So mm. Hmm. I just stream for free. It's sorry. Let's, let's <laughs> get back to what we were what have talking done? about. What have I sorry, done? Forget p- 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 I
0: mentioned pornography. It took us less than two minutes to get to porn. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, from it's nostalgia it's to porn. porn um, some sad childhoods there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, one one thing that comes to mind, perhaps for myself, is so I've always loved Indiana Jones, and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that when I was a younger. Uh, like a kid, I had a video that my grandma had that she had recorded. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom off the TV, I'm pretty sure. And then it had Romancing the Stone with Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas there as well. And I love both of those films now, kind of just because I'd get sat down and it's like, "Here's your favorite video. Off you go um, and watch that." And I don't know where it is, but like if that, if I could find that that particular video, that physical copy. I probably would hold on to it, like even knowing that I'd never, I'd never watch it again, I'd never, never, never do anything with it. I, I, I just would still
1: want to have it because it's just a part of my childhood now. I'm sh- do you, yeah. do you have things like that? Well, almost exactly. Like my grandma had uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark on VHS. You kidding? She taped off the TV, and that's was one of the sort of seminal films from my childhood. Yeah, full of all those really old commercials too. You'd have to fast forward through them, but. Yeah. There's a lot of old ads now that are kind of drilled into my memory just because they were part of that film. Like Dougie the Pete Hut guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, or oh, yeah. the Ultra Pack ad. That's oh, what you will
2: get. I Alterpack. I Pack. I, s- I studied with the guy that <laughs> did that ad. Actually, well, yeah. He was like fifty uh, when he it's did uh, it. It's uh, Mark Tinson. Um, oh,
3: okay. Sorry, Mark. Maybe you're not fifty when you did it.
2: Yeah. Oh well, that <laughs> we, when I I actually. That's <laughs> what he did. It was Alterpack. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, it was like the first thing, just a fun fact. When I left school, I thought I wanted to do uh, sound engineering. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the first teacher I was introduced to. Him, and he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I did the, the Alderpack packet." So I started kissing wow. his feet, bowing, just went, you are a legend. Oh, wait, he claps. did the
3: sound engineering for it? Or he was the guy he that said, only $148, only
2: this month. And <laughs> only, only at, at Pack. <laughs> no, he's <laughs> just I the guy that was for w- 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> he's just the one that went. Oh, yeah. That's the best part. He, right. was, he had the clap. Oh. Did he? Did he? <laughs> in, in the commercial, he had the clap.
1: Yeah, he had other problems, obviously. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: no, uh, yeah, the alter yeah. yeah. pack. Being older pack that alter that oh, alter that pack money wasn't one of them. No, uh,
1: <laughs> no, but he got a topical cream, and and now he's teaching. Yeah. But uh, yeah, probably <laughs> ex- lives around the experience. corner. Let's just take it uh, easy, yeah. <laughs> um,
3: Joe, Mark. If you're watching, I apologise
1: oh, f- profusely. <laughs> um,
0: Joe, <laughs> do you have anything like that? Do, is there stuff that you, uh, fr- do you have anything that you've kept from your child or Your family's kept where you know. You're probably not going to, you know, maybe maybe the medium is redundant, but you keep it because it has some value other than... Uh, my grandma was very different to you
3: you guys' grandma. Um, she gave me, like, Latin books and stuff. Oh. Um, yeah, I don't know Latin. I don't know. <laughs> she was a very, very intelligent... ex um, name ed- Latin the Atten ed- 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 Educated woman. <laughs> <laughs> grandma. <laughs> <laughs>
1: grandma gay. <laughs> uh, uh, um wow. Wow. but uh <laughs> I, I speak g- Latin, by the way. Yeah, yeah. clearly, yeah. Fluently your, your um, pig Latin's all yeah.
3: over it. Uh-huh. Grandma gay. <laughs> 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 grandma gay. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um Old grandma gay. She was yeah. a beautiful woman. That's actually, <laughs> yeah, it's actually um, a daughter. Yeah. I'm gay. It's grandma win. But um yeah. yeah, we can we can keep it down to single syllable names. Uh I g- I was given uh tapes. By uh, my dad's good mate Dietmar, who he is—he's uh, a very talented artist—and he loved the Beatles, loved them. And um, when I started to get into the Beatles, when I was about ten or so, we went camping, all this—you know, big group of us—and he brought along his Beatles tapes for the car ride, and um, we, you know, we, we listened to. Well, he had them all, uh, and what he had done was he taped. Uh, obviously, the album onto the cassette, but he had also um, drawn the cover onto like a, I mean I don't even know what a, what a, the dimensions on a cassette are, but it's a matter of a few inches by a few inches. and he did a scale. He did one inch by one inch and he did every single Beatles album cover. For and so because the tape was long enough, you know, uh, you know, A side, B side, he would have two albums per cassette, mm. and he would do the two album covers side by side. And the most crazy, impressive is he did Sgt. Pepper's with all seventy odd characters into a little one inch by one inch. So was it
1: hand drawn? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, he drew wow. them
0: himself. I reckon he probably. At the end of that one, probably just went with the White Album on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. It's all the White Album. Yeah, well, that
1: would have been difficult because <laughs> it's a double, Very it's a double long, album. Yeah. Very long album <laughs> they did. The
3: Beatles songs. Done. Uh, but, but uh, you know, at the end of it, Deet said to me, listen, you you know, there were just tapes, but he was like, I'm, I'm going to keep my covers, which was understandable. Um, but he gave me the cassette, um, a cassette of my choosing, and because I was ten, I chose the one that had "Please Please Me," and uh, I think it's with the Beatles. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've still got that tape. Uh, it was yeah, it was it was like a really special gift to me. But I like I particularly remembered it because I was like, oh my god, look at, and I, I, he would definitely still have all of them. And uh, like, it'd be worth <laughs> it'd be worth bringing on the show one time. His little one inch by one inch with seventy odd people drawn into
0: it, um, that was that was pretty spectacular. That's it's, insane. It's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, there's the nostalgia element that we all have an affinity with. It's something perhaps that, I guess, subsequent generations aren't going to be able to experience. And, uh, you know, with specific uh, reference to perhaps cinema and things like that, not having a physical copy of something is, is going to become commonplace. And they're going to miss all of that. I mean, you can buy... You can, you can download albums and films now and it, it's just that. You don't even get the digital booklet or things like that. It's just like, this is the product in its bare bones. And I suppose that's the way it's going. And I kind of think that's a little bit sad because in the same way that there's something spectacular about a really amazing film poster, you know, not having that, the I guess, the artistic direction that comes supplementary to the feature film makes the product, I'm not going to say... L- Necessarily lackluster, but it, it makes it a lot more one-dimensional. Is that something you guys would agree with? Impersonal.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, just the thrill of going into a, a blockbuster, or, yeah. or, or you know, a, a video easy. Mm. The thrill of <laughs> look, going and hunting for films based on the cover art. You know, it's almost like the the, the you know people talk about vinyl and you know mm. how the cover art's so important. A VHS was a decent size. So you got the back, the front, and uh, you could you know there was there was something tangible, and even and somebody, th- that's
0: gone. And somebody had to think about and you know. There will be maybe act certain action films, and they'd have someone would have had to have chosen three stills from the film. It's like these are what are going on the back oh, to, yeah. se- to sell us like, <laughs> and it'd be like you know if it was Terminator Two, it'd be like you know maybe the semi trailer going off the bridge or Arnie with the shot, you know like things. It's like the Terminator's ha- face w- half melted yeah, off was yeah. like a really pivotal. We've got we've image. got two sides of of the of a cat like a VHS box to get people to go. I'm going to spend money on that. Mm. Like, that's quite incredible. And don't get me wrong. I mean, there's advertisement. And there always will be for this kind of stuff. But you go into a place like a video store where y- you're certainly not starved for choice. And then it really comes down as, like, what's going to visually grab me the most? And it, it, it's sad that that medium perhaps is, is going to the wayside to a degree.
1: Well, do you guys remember the, the place in Meriwether called Flukie's? It was yes. next to where the little Italian restaurant is there off Glebe Road. Oh, not the ladies' <laughs> the ladies' dressing store. What do you call them? Ladies' wear? No, no. Wha- I don't no, know. They no. sell dresses. I don't know. Well, maybe but it a, it's an Italian restaurant that's been there forever. You know, off um, this way you turn off to go to Merryweather. Uh, it's like a legendary Italian. Aravedici. Yeah, ri- yes. Ri- yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, I believe that's it. Anyway, it was, it was just there. Mm. It was a little little house that had been turned into a, a VHS store, and I basically were the second-hand you could walk in and buy, but Mm they also did wholesale to all the Video Easies. So if you were hardcore enough, a collector of VHS, and you couldn't wait until the film came off the new release stand and kind of dropped in price, you could go in there and pay like $60, $70 and get the VHS the day it arrived, and you could buy it the same time it was going into the VHS, into Video Easy stores. And people would. You'd pre-order a movie... And it's just like getting the new release DVD. Like, you would, you, you would get it at the same time Video Easy gets it. And I remember I had a friend that would do that occasionally, and it was, like, really cool. They like could go over and make this brand new film. It'd be like
0: when you got, a yeah. like, a, a video game for a Nintendo or any of the subsequent systems, and you were the first kid in the neighbourhood to get a hold of it. It's so like, everyone would come around. Mm. Oh, my God. I can't... I remember when... This is showing my age a little bit, but I remember when, the, uh, the, when on the Nintendo system, when Super Mario Brothers, the original, came out. And it was yeah. like... There was fanfare around, <laughs> like everyone went to this one kid's house, and we all sat down and, and just watched one kid <laughs> freaking, <laughs> out, <laughs> freaking out, like freaking out. He had a seizure it's and died, died because he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't deal with it. But um, but I mean, there are memories that I have now. Yeah, the death of a small child, and my love of video games <laughs> continues. Um, yeah. yeah,
2: there's, I, I th- you know, uh, cassettes. I think it's great that you can you, but you can cherish those memories whether they were recorded. And now you can pop them onto the computer and, and have them even longer. Mm. Now there's a point that I want to make. So mm. I I I, uh, I put some gadflies uh, onto uh, my phone, mm. not realizing that I'd synced with dad's stuff. Now my dad's a bagpiper. What are gadflies? Mm.
1: gadflies? The band the gadflies, Mick oh, Moriarty right. and Phil Moriarty they used to play on uh, Good News Week, mm. they were the house band.
3: Oh, I was like, they were band. really <laughs> good. Yeah, they, really really good. Where they
2: had that song. Then came Mac Monroe. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like do. Like, I was like,
3: "Are you reference. misspoken? Is it gad files?" And it's a form of <laughs> file that I don't know. A gad. Oh, I you were yeah. like, I
0: thought that you were like might have been a hacker for a bit. It took <laughs> me a while. I, I was like, "Oh my god! Wow!" Um, <laughs> so gadflies, bagpipes.
2: Yeah. So my dad plays the bagpipes, and uh, didn't realize I'd synced with his stuff. So um, that he'd put uh, from his cassette onto the computer. So I'm sitting on the train on the on the way to Sydney, just listening to my gadflies, and all of a sudden now. There's a way of talking bagpipes, which uh, apparently I think I'm probably the only young person in Newcastle wouldn't know this, but you can actually talk bagpipes. So like, you'll like be talking it, uh, like, like, it, like, like a tune. Like, like when you're like in you your you're
1: bagpipe <laughs> circles, you're like... when <laughs> 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 <It's like. laughs> <laughs> you say talk bagpipes, so you're talking into it? or you? No, so you,
2: you'll you have your sheet music and it's just this, you know, you, you'll talk it out. So it might go... And it's really boring like that. And I unfortunately now have that on my phone.
3: Mm. Oh, okay. That should be your ringtone.
2: No. Yeah, <laughs> actually, you know, the funny, the funniest ringtone my brother ever had was someone eating toast.
1: Oh. Mm. Was it audible? Like he well, lost, lost his phone. So oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: I guess if I had a... Like, uh, redirecting us back in... Is there going to be physical copies in the next... F- when are they going to go out? It's got to be soon, right? As far as cinema is concerned, that's the direction we're moving in. It seems as though we're, we're bottlenecking the way in which we get our media now. And we've spoken about briefly, perhaps, in other coming attractions episodes, the notion of the streaming format and the effects that perhaps it'll have on on modern cinema goers. You might only start going to blockbusters, and a lot of perhaps the indie films will just start going straight to streaming. Is there an argument to be made? Do you think that in the next five... Maybe the, in the next decade that we might not have physical copies anymore? They might just go completely to the wayside? Do you think that's going to be a real oh, thing?
1: Yeah, without doubt. Yeah, mm. I, think, I, I mean, you can still buy DVDs remarkably, but you know now it's Blu-ray mostly. And mm.
3: Well, even Blu-ray, it didn't take off to the... I think it, it got caught at the wrong end of it because it was like, mm. look how much better the, the picture quality is. But people were like... Yeah but, but it's not half better than DVD and now they're streaming and mm. I don't know that I want to pay triple for something that I'm just not going to have for that long. I think people are aware of that now. Yeah. And Blu-ray came at the at the end of physical. Um now it needs to be and even I I spent hours and hours and days getting all this variety of music and TV shows and movies from people's computers and hard drives and assembled them onto a terabyte. uh, And I I took it with me overseas and I backed it up on a double terabyte. I don't have either of those things anymore. I don't care. I gave them away to people. I was like, yeah, you're traveling. Check this out. You you need it more than I do. I don't know. I've got Netflix. I'll be right. And you just get that way about it, isn't it? You're quite flippant about it because it's just this little piece of plastic with some hardware inside it that... It's hard to put a price on it when you think, you look through, you know, your old man's record collection and there are these big, beautiful, you know, pieces of art that you flip through one at a time. And I don't know, my old man's got hundreds of them and you sort of go, I don't know, he might give one or two away here or there, you know, if a, you know, really, um, a mate really gets into, really got into Harvest Moon. And he, and he, you know, went and he found it. He was like, oh, I've got this like, you know, special edition of it and because you love it and I know you've got a, uh, a record player and gave yeah. it to him you know and, it was, and, and like and then it was you know it was like a nice moment between them at least whereas like I left my hard drive with a mate in Liverpool and I was like there you go dude <sighs> make sure you watch Archer it's heaps funny <laughs> and, and that's
0: not really a sweet moment and he's probably lost it by now. I, I have a question I guess for all of you what seems apparent from this conversation is that unless there's some real connection to nostalgia, the physical copy of something isn't that important. And perhaps if you were to go to, you know, uh, like a an entertainment kind of store to, to buy stuff, by and large you probably wouldn't unless it was something particularly special to you as well. It might even have a connection to that nostalgic element, you might not have that. So it seems as though it needs to be something fairly important uh, to you, for you to actually buy the physical copy now and, and keep it knowing how readily available it is elsewhere. So my question would be, is there anything that companies can do to place more value in the physical copy of something that they're not doing now? Is there anything that comes to mind where you'd be like, you know what, that's something that I would get on board with, knowing that I can still get it somewhere else and I could stream it or I can I can get it somewhere else. Is there anything that comes to mind
1: at all? I think anything they can serve up, they you can get off someone. You can go onto the internet and be acquired. You know, mm. part of the the what DVDs had going for them was all the special features mm. and d- uh, directors' commentaries in particular. I, I listened to heaps of directors' commentaries. Yep. That was real a real innovation. But now it's like, I'm sure they're all online. Mm. And that's the thing. It's just an immediacy. Some one person's
0: buying and then ripping all that information yeah. in. And then you can if
1: you want to watch something, want to listen to something, you can just do that now. If you've got the internet, that's a thing. So yeah. I don't know what they could do.
2: It's a very now society though. I feel like there's not as much patience. Sure, with yeah. things. You yeah. know, I want to see something now. Let's go now, now, now. Mm.
3: I like know. books. Same with books. No, but I like books. I don't like e-books.
2: I, like I don't like staring at a screen.
3: Yeah, no, that's it. I would like that a book offers that, and it's the only one that I can think of that I would have the patience to go, no, I'd rather not look at a screen for this one. If I'm going to read something, yeah. I would rather hold it in my hand and not have the glow. You know, you get to the end of a day of work having stared at a screen, and you walk out, and you're like, oh, you're all bleary-eyed, and it's a little bit off-putting, and you sort of think... This isn't right, is it? Like, you're not supposed to stare at this glow all day long. And it's nice that you know, at the end of a day, to, to pick up a book instead.
0: And that doesn't answer the film question at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I know what you're talking about, though. I mean, there's 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 ways of digesting that kind of stuff. I know that a lot of the um, contemporary records that have come out, I think they touched on an element that should definitely be grabbed. And that's that when you buy the record as a physical copy, it also comes with a, like a little docket has a little code, and then you can Get digitally download the, digital download the same thing. So you've paid for the product still, so the money's coming through there, and then they're like, you know what, the digital thing doesn't cost us any, any more really anyway. So whether or not there's an argument to be made about having um, you know, something like that where you could actually obtain m- more of the product having bought the digital copy, if there's some way to... Well, they to, like to, to try, try and bundle
3: from... it now, don't they? Mm. You know, it comes with a limited edition T-shirt that you can only buy if you buy the physical record, which you'll also get the digital download for, or you can
0: wait two months, and then when there's a surplus of them, you can buy them from the store. Here's an mm. idea. This sounds crazy, but I think it could probably work. Let's say the next Star Wars comes out and it goes to DVD. What happens if you had a... You can see first scenario, where if you bought the physical, physical, physical copy... You would put your name down in some registration or something like that and be like, when new trailers and things like that come out, they're gonna come out or you know, some kind of digital well, it would medium. be you
3: get first dibs on the midnight ticket is the only way I could see that working because mm. as soon as someone else
0: gets it, they'd be like, I'm gonna be the first to upload it to that's the right. internet. But that's a uh, but, but that's, mean, no, but there that's is a an good argument, one, to be made, yeah. yeah like, they have to start thinking laterally with this kind of stuff or otherwise the things that we have loved that have now become obsolete are going to become obsolete for a completely new generation of people and at some stage we won't have any physical copies at all and I think that's kind of sad
1: yeah Yeah. I think so too Yeah.
0: anyway I think that's everything we've got time for (laughs) for coming attractions this time around I would like to thank our special guest Ash thank you so much for coming in and having a chat with us and Joe Nick as always thank you for coming (laughs) again
1: I would have anyway I know I
0: got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, please head to comingattractions.com.au for all of our latest reviews and our podcasts as well. They're all all they're ready to go. And please check out our Facebook as well. Leave some comments if you have any questions. Don't hesitate to put them forward. We'll be back next time. Thanks once again. Cool. This is the podcast of the night. Podcast.
2: This is the podcast of the night. This is the podcast of the night. Come to Trash and Share. Oh, yeah. It's the
0: podcast of the night.